Our good and our holy God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have spoken your love for us through your word. And God, we are grateful that you have demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to live and to die with us and for us. God, you proved yourself over and over. And in this place, Lord, we are able to say that we love you because you first loved us. And so now, Lord, in this hour of worship, we say to you, speak. Speak because your children are listening. Speak because your servants are listening. This is our prayer in the strong name of the Trinity, and we pray together saying, Amen and Amen. Friends, please be seated. It is that time of year again, and no, I'm not talking about filling out your income taxes. Maybe that time too, but certainly that's no way to begin a sermon, right? It's the time of the year when you go back into that dark corner in your garage, you put your hand through the cobwebs, and you reach for your fishing rod, right? You pull it out, and you, and you, you reline it. You spray a little WD-40 on it, and I know you're not supposed to put WD-40 on the fishing rod, but that's really been said by people who sell oils other than WD-40. If it was good enough for God and my granddaddy, WD-40 is still good enough for me. You get ready, you get, your, you get your lures out, you know, you start charting out some plans, you call up some friends, you're ready to go fishing. When springtime comes, I'm ready to go fishing. It's just great. If you know a fisherman, you also know a storyteller because fishing and storytelling go together. Now, that means that every fisherman is a liar. Most fishermen are liars. But all fishermen, almost all fishermen, men and women, are great storytellers. I love to hear your stories about fishing. And, and I even heard one this morning just lingering around in, in this sanctuary. If you ask me to tell, tell, tell you about the first time I caught a shark, you'd love to hear that story. If, if you ask me to tell you about the first time I caught a woodpecker, <laughs> really happened, you'd love to hear that story. My favorite fishing story is about my great-grandfather who, with a bunch of friends, went off to Pascagoula to fish in the Gulf of Mexico. They, they rolled down about three-hour drive. They spent the whole weekend uh, on the Gulf of Mexico fishing for, for speckled trout and redfish and this and that and the other. And while they were there, one of the buddies died, had a heart attack, or so they thought. Being thrifty Irishmen from Meridian, Mississippi, they said, we'll skip a step, and they took him straight to the funeral home, Pascagoula, Mississippi. They said, if we take him by the hospital, that'll just waste time and money. Let's just go ahead and get him to the funeral home. Well, lo and behold, he wasn't fully dead. <laughs> he resuscitated after a few hours and went on to live about another 20 years. A picture from that fishing trip hung on the walls of the Wadman's restaurant in downtown Meridian for generations. It was a humdinger. I love fishing stories. But you know what I've noticed over the years is that most fishing stories are not about fish at all. They're about people. They're about friends. They're about, 
They're about folks who like to be together and their common experiences. They're about life and challenges. If you hear, if you listen to fishing stories, you'll hear underneath all the bluster about fish and the one that got away. Something deep and important about life. For the next three weeks, we're going to spend some time with the grandpappy of all fishing stories. It's the story of Jonah from the Old Testament. And I want you to imagine that you're, that you're a, a Lebanese sailor and you're hanging out in a little joint in the Mediterranean years and years ago and you're laboring over a plate of fried barracuda and you're telling stories and somebody says to you, wait, 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 wait. I got one that can beat all of those. I got one that can beat all of those. I want you to listen for the next three weeks like you've never heard this wild and wonderful story before. Like you've never been to Sunday school. Like you never had this painted on your wall, the nursery where you grew up. I want you, if you can, to hear it with fresh ears. Because it's quite a grown-up tale. It's a big powerful story and it has an important word to speak to us here in the 21st century several weeks ago even months ago i was sitting with israel loakaman he's our spanish preacher at first baptist church we're talking about what are we going to preach on you know in the upcoming season in the springtime he said i'd really like to speak about jonah i said me too that sounds great let's get to work i've preached from jonah before highlighting different aspects of it, mostly talking about the mission of God in the world because it speaks to that in a powerful way. Sometimes talking about racial prejudice and what a sin that is, it speaks to that in a powerful way. But for the next three weeks, I just want us to look at the two main characters of this story. And the two main characters are God and Jonah. And to learn from this relationship... And to see what the relationship between God and this very poor prophet has to teach us about life and faith and our relationship with God in Waco, Texas in 2016. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to take them in turn. If you didn't bring them, there's one provided somewhere in those pews. Today our focal text is Jonah chapter 1. When I hear the pages, quit turning. I'll begin reading. Close enough. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep. 
So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and they made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And so begins our story. We look at this, we begin with God and, and this, this cantankerous prophet, and we, we have an invitation first. God says to Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach in Nineveh. This was God's purpose for him. This is what God wanted him to do. God laid it out very plainly. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh. But Jonah. I tell you, when you see the word but in the Bible, you need to pay attention. Because something really good or something really bad is about to follow. But Jonah. It said Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to go to Tarshish. From time to time, we help people get where they, where they feel like they need to go. They, they've run across hard challenges or they're running from something in Waco. And they come to the church and they ask if we can help them get to where they, they want to go. And quite often we do that. We'll help someone have a bus ticket to get to where maybe they have somebody on the other end or, or maybe they don't have somebody on this end. We don't know all this whole story every single time. But just recently, Randall Perry and I were down at the Greyhound station helping somebody get to where they wanted to go. And you could see the relief that just washed over the guy's face. 
when he could get on that bus and get out of town. God spoke to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah head to the Greyhound station. And he bought a ticket to ride. He said, I want to go to Tarshish. Now, what do we know about Tarshish? Not a lot. But you have, you have, you have in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 10, 22, this little description about the glories of Solomon. And it said that sailors from Tarshish would come every three years and they would bring to Israel shipments. And they would bring silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. Now that's quite a load of stuff. That's interesting stuff. Tarsus, these are the people that bring us the peacocks. These are the people that unload the apes. This is where the ivory comes from. And what's ivory? Oh, they say there's these gigantic, these gigantic beings with these huge tusks. And, and it's exotic and far, far away. And in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Sometimes we just want to go where we want to go. Even if it's not where God wants us to go. Why did Jonah want to go there and not go there? Was it because he misunderstood God and his purposes and his plans? No. If there's anything plain about the story of Jonah, and we'll emphasize this in the, next, in the next few weeks. If there's anything plain about it, is that God was understood by Jonah. Jonah understood God. He got it. When he was pressed in the middle of the storm, he said, who are you and where'd you come from and who's your God? He said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of the sea and the land. And there's nothing else. Sea and land. Some people say, well, Jonah was just very narrow. He felt like God. No, he's, I'm the God who's in charge of all this stuff. He had a broad, powerful view and understanding of who God was. Not only that, he believed God to be merciful and kind. Later on, we, we understand that that was the problem he had with God. Was that God didn't like the people. No, he, he wanted God to not like the people he didn't like. He understood God. He got God. Not only that, he knew what God wanted him to do. Go to Nineveh. Quite often we say, well, if I just understood God more, or if I understood what he wanted me to do, I would do it. Maybe, but it's not a given. Jonah knew God. He knew him personally. He knew what his character was. And he was very clear about what God wanted him to do with his life. And he still ran as hard as he could in the other direction. Jonah's problem, and most of the time our problem, is not a lack of knowledge or understanding. Jonah's problem lied in the affections of his heart. His wanter was busted. His desire factory was faulty. He wanted, he desired something that was at cross purposes with God's purpose and plan for his life. His passions were all mixed up. 
Later in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes about our wants, our desires, our passions. And he gives an example. He said, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Paul is saying if your, if your passion, if your motive is only to acquire, if, that was, if that's what drives you in life, then that means your wanter is not functioning right. And that faulty desire will lead to another faulty desire which will lead you into a place of temptation and more faulty desires and foolishness and ultimately destruction. God is jealous for our hearts. He loves us and He wants to shape and motivate us through our passions and our desires, our emotions, our hungers, because this is how we make most of our decisions. Most people don't make decisions based on what makes sense or what is logical or reasonable. We make our our decisions, the smartest people in this room, based on what our passions and our hungers are. And Jonah's passion and his hunger was at cross-purposes with God's plan. Because he was living out of a place of, of hatred, of bitterness. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like Ninevites. Pure and simple. And fear. He was afraid. And we get so afraid. And we live our lives sometimes based on what we're afraid of. And quite often that fear drives us in the wrong directions. But friends, there is really good news. We don't have to be motivated by our fears or by our prejudices or by our grasping. There are things, indeed, that are more powerful than these. In the little novels, The Hunger Games, little adolescent fiction, President Snow looks at Seneca Crane and says, Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. There's great truth to that. We can be governed by our grasping and our hatred and our fear, or we can be governed by faith and hope and love. And Paul said, these are the things that remain. Faith and hope and love. Those are the stubborn things. Those are the resilient things. Those are the things that pass from this age to the age to come when there is no sin and shame, when when we experience the reign of God without rival. Faith and hope and love, they last. And the greatest of these is love. When we're faced with a choice, and the choice is Nineveh, Tarshish, the hard call to prophesy to people you don't like, or the place where peacocks come from. When we're faced with these choices, we need to ask ourselves, what's driving me? Is it my love for God and my desire to please Him? Is it a sense of faith? Is it a life of courage born of faith and born of hope? Or is it the fear of loss and death? Or is it the fear of losing face? Is it the fear and the bitterness that that grasp so tightly? 
when we're faced with the choice of the cities that lie before us, we have to ask, why am I choosing what I'm choosing? Why am I picking what I'm picking? My, my call to us this morning, for all of us, is to cherish the stuff that works. That Guy Clark song, stuff that works, stuff that lasts, stuff you don't hang on the wall. And the stuff that works is faith, it's hope, it's love. Jonah is a cautionary tale for all of us because he chose the other direction. Which leads us to the second little thing for us to, to linger over this morning. And that's this, this scene of the tempest. He gave in to temptation. He went the wrong way. And the words of Scripture says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Which means God loved Jonah enough to get all down in his business and stir things up. This is a word about holy chastening or holy discipline or the parenthood of God in our life. It's not a popular word because we live in an age of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Which means we think God basically wants you to be nice to people you like or the right people. Generally speaking, wants you to be a pleasant person walking through the earth. And that God will pretty much leave you alone. This is the prevailing religious thought in North America. And that God will pretty much leave you alone until you call in for some help with a parking spot at Target or something. But this is not the wild and wonderful God of Scripture. We don't serve a God who pretty much leaves us alone until we need a parking spot. We serve a God that gets in the midst of our, of our life. And Jonah was, was running this way, and God went, and stirred a tempest and churned the seas. Jonah was sleeping. He was worn out. And it's also a picture of him just being not fully alive. He was sleeping down in the belly of that boat when the storm rose. And everybody's freaking out and everybody's panicking. They said, go wake up that guy downstairs. And they hauled him up and they said, we're about to cast lots to see, to see who to pin this on. Snake eyes. It's almost like God said, <laughs> that's funny, I can play that one. <laughs> they rolled bad for old Jonah. They tossed him in the sea. And he wound up in the methane environment of a swimming cave. And that's where chapter 1 ends. What a story. What a story. But this idea of a disciplinarian God, of a father that gets in our life to, to churn it up. Let's allow that to make us uncomfortable for a moment. Let's allow that to bring us to a place where we honestly consider it. You say, man, that's just a wild story from the Old Testament. That's certainly not so. Well, if you keep turning the pages. You get to the New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? That's verse 5 in chapter 12. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what a son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Therefore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet. For the limb which is lame may be not put out of joint, but rather healed. This is the New Testament perspective on that hard-edged grace of God. When we read this, we can walk away with certain powerful theological truths. The first being, God loves His children. Jesus taught us to pray, Abba, Father. Intimate and respectful, Abba, Father. Paul said in the New Testament that when when we confess our faith in Christ, when when by grace through faith we are saved, we we receive the spirit of adoption. And through the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father. And we know God in this powerful relationship of kind and strong love. God loves his kids. Second thing is that God disciplines his children. He guides us and directs us and gets in the midst of our business. That's the second truth. The third truth is that this discipline is for our good. God is not a cruel God, and He is not capricious. What God does in our life, He does for our good, to make us more like His Son, Christ. For Jonah, this this raging sea was for his good. Because above all things, God loved this boy, Jonah, who was such a raging mess. It's for our good. Fourth thing, discipline is not pleasant at the time. Not a joyful moment. You say, would God do anything in my life that's not pleasant? Yep. Why? Because he loves us. And the fifth one is, as we look back on this, we look back on this with gratitude. Because what he has shaped in us is righteous and it is good and it is right. R.T. Kendall wrote a book, and the title of the book was The Thorn in the Flesh, and in that he gave a whole chapter to this idea of God's chastening or discipline or guiding his children. 
And he said, there's sort of a plan A and a plan B. Uh, he said that the plan A is internal discipline. Plan B is sort of an external kind of thing. Uh, internal discipline, he said, is like this. is when we go and we're confronted with Scripture and we read the Bible and we worship. And God's, God's still small voice convict, convicts our heart that this is what he would have us do. This is how God chases his children. It's the primary way God guides us is by God giving us the truth and calling us to live our lives through his help in accordance with it. He said, that's, that's, God's, that's God's plan A. And the plan B, when we run as hard as we can, when we hop on the Greyhound bus and we ride like we're Blaze Foley till the sun comes up around two or three times, then, then God has other options. And so how do, you, how do you know what that is? I don't know. I don't know. But I know those things are good. And most of the time it has, has to do with us being outed. Whatever we're harboring, whatever we're, we're hiding, it, it just becomes open. And we have to deal with it. It's probably different for every single person because we're all very different people. And, and God is very creative and loving, but God is going to get in the midst of the lives of his people and, and stir it up because he's stubborn and he loves us with a stubborn, passionate love. Jonah flunked the temptation test. And he met the tempest. And every single last one of us, throughout our day, throughout our week, in small and in large ways, we're confronted with choices. The choice to say yes to God, the choice to say no. I'm not one of those kind of people that think we're like puppets on a string, marionettes, and and God's just playing games with all of us. I, I don't think that. I believe God's given us the ability to look him squarely in his heart and say, nope, I'll do it my own way. That's why it says of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Grief is a love word, and God loves us. And God is God. I'd probably have done it a lot differently uh, than, than our God has done it, than the God of Scripture. I'd have been a lot more like Zeus or somebody. I'd been like Rocky Balboa. You're not going to tell me no if I'm God. But God, what a wonderful God. He's given us this gift of choice and freedom, and we can say yes, and we can say no. And he's always on the side of yes, because our yes to God is what is best for us. Even if it's harder, even if it's harder than going to where the peacocks are raised and hiding it out and doing it our own way. This week, something will lie before all of us. And the best way, even in the short term, if it looks more difficult, is God's way. And he's going to do everything in his power to get us to yes, short of forcing the matter. What a story story between Jonah and God. Also, a story about me and God. About we, us, and God. What will you do with this God that calls you to live in light of his purpose and his plans? God, we thank you so much for springtime and new life and all the symbols of it. We thank you for this time of year uh, where the, it looks just like the world is coming alive again. 
God, so many of us are sort of sleeping in the bottom of a boat, just slumbering through things. Wake us up, God. Call us. Call us to life. Call us to what can be through the power of your Spirit. God, I pray for people in this room that are in places of decision. I pray that they would follow you and that they would find the strength that comes from your life and your, your spirit. Lord, I pray as we sing here at the end of this service that you would just help us settle things in our heart uh, and help us to face a new week with a renewed sense of, of priority and passion and, and placing you at the first place of our lives. God, help us. Help us to live and and to do and to will and to, and to want in ways that are in accordance with your loving, uh, your loving guidance over our lives. God, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. We say together, amen. Friends, let's stand up. We're going to sing. If you have things that you need to make public, maybe a decision to confess Christ or join this church, we invite you to come. If you simply have needs and you'd like for your church family to pray with you, about those in this room as an act of worship. We invite you to come as well uh, for God's glory and for your good. Let's sing together. David?